Welcome back for the third time this week to the Metal Exchange, and it is Power Quest week as we celebrate our 100th episode, which we posted a couple days ago. And we posted our 101st episode a couple of days after that, an interview with uh, uh, Power Quest vocalist Ashley Edison. And today we have another exclusive interview with the founder and keyboard player and songwriter extraordinaire from Power Quest, the magnificent Mr. Steve Williams from the UK. Steve, welcome to the Metal Exchange and thank you for joining us. How are you doing? Good evening, guys. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing great. I, I've crawled out of my uh, pandemic stone, and uh, I, I'm back in the land of the living and all that kind of jazz. So, uh, yeah, I'm doing all right, man. Doing all right. How are you? We're good here. Uh, Justin, how are you today? I am fantastic. I am never better. It is an honor and a privilege to be able to talk to you, Steve, and I look forward to kind of picking your brain and taking a walk with you down memory lane because there is certainly a lot to cover over the last 20 plus years. And um, who better to talk to than the man who has been there and done that and, and been with, been, you know, been there since the very beginning. So this is going to be a lot of fun for us. And I think, uh, I, I hope you enjoy it as well. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So uh, kind of just digging right into things. Um, how, where, when did you discover that you wanted to become a musician and um, what what kind of bands were you listening to as a kid that really kind of got you going and, and got you excited about music and just kind of a little bit of the background of even before before Dragon Heart and Power Quest, just, you know, little kid Steve, like what was he listening to and, and when did it dawn on you that, hey, I think I got a knack for this? Well, I suppose like so many people, my kind of gateway to music was through my parents and, and not so much what they listened to. Cause you know, I don't, I don't know if you know, my dad was a church minister, so there was n- never any rock and roll in the house or anything like that, you know, for kind of, kind of obvious reasons, I suppose. But I guess 79, 80, I started being aware of, you know, pop music and stuff like that. I remember listening to bands like the police and hearing those guys for the first time and getting interested in that kind of stuff. And even, you know, over here particularly, there was that whole new romantic thing going on, you know, with bands like Duran Duran and, and stuff like that. So I was hearing stuff like that on the radio and, and all that kind of thing. But it was probably, I, I went to a different school in 1981, and completely different type of people, all this kind of stuff. Um, and there was one guy who was a bit like me, a bit of a loner, didn't fit in with everybody else kind of thing. Turns out he, he was banging to things like Motorhead, Saxon, that kind of stuff. And he got an older brother. Now, this older brother, arguably, was where it all started. This guy would give his little brother tapes and records to bring in and show me. And, you know, I'd look at these things and go, wow. And, you know, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. So, yeah, we used to copy things for each other, but only between ourselves, you know, and that kind of stuff. So we got into... Sure. Oh, Bands that weren't really metal, but, you know, they were rock bands like Triumph and April Wine and bands like that. Uh, and then, you know, the obvious gateway, things like Iron Maiden, you know, came on the, the horizon. I probably didn't hear Maiden till 82, till Number of the Beast came out. So fast forward two or three years from there, and you're at the start of the the thrash movement, I suppose. Slayer are putting the first record out and stuff like that. By this point, there's a couple of other lads in the school who are into the same sort of 
music and all this kind of thing. So we thought we'd, you know, do the obvious thing and try and put a band together and, and all that kind of kind of stuff that everybody does and, and so on. And it was far from successful, as you can imagine. In parallel to all that was my classical music training that my parents had started when I was seven. So I'd managed to square off all the theory grades, all the piano grades and most of the violin grades. But I was listening to Deep Purple, Van Halen, you know, that kind of stuff. I wasn't listening to Mozart and Beethoven and things like that. But when I look at it now and look at those two parallel journeys that you're doing at the same time kind of thing, it does explain the Power Quest sound quite a bit. You know, the, the almost kind of neoclassical thing that goes on, certainly in the earlier stuff. And certainly the melodic kind of stadium rock edges that started appearing probably on the second album. So I think that whole intro, if you like, did eventually lead to what I ended up doing some 25 years later kind of thing. You know, the whole 90s period for me was probably the most frustrating where I spent, bear in mind, as as you know, pre-internet. So you want to find musicians, you were putting adverts in music shops or in the back of music magazines and all that kind of thing. And I, I must have done that for five or six years, getting absolutely nowhere fast kind of thing. Uh, until, bizarrely, I auditioned for a band as a guitar player and didn't get the job. But I was noodling around with a keyboard and they were going, shit, you're a bit good at that. We know somebody who's looking for a keyboard player, which happened to be Herman. So that's how I got in touch with the Dragonheart guys. And that's how I suppose the road on this, that particular leg of the journey started. So I guess that's the kind of insight into it all on a fairly high level, I guess. I feel like it's always the, um, the big brother or the cousin or, or something that seems, Oh, I mean, it was my gateway as well. It was my friend's cousin who indoctrinated me, uh, during my formative years when I was in, you know, 15, 16 years old. And, you know, I, the, I, I remember hearing Stradivarius for the first time as a 16 year old or, or 15 year old. And my head just exploded. I mean, I obviously I knew, you know, I, I knew Metallica and I knew stuff like that. But then when I heard, you know, the keyboards of, of Jen Johansson on top of that neoclassical power metal sound, my head just exploded. And I said that, that is what I want to hear more of right there. That's what I want. So it's interesting because I think we were on the same journey, obviously a couple of years, you know, some years apart, but it was the same type of journey. And it seems like everyone shares that same story. It's kind of how they were indoctrinated into this whole thing. Absolutely. And a lot of it depends on where you grow up as well. You know, if you grow up in a big cosmopolitan area, then clearly you're getting more access to things consciously and subconsciously. I grew up in a small village in North Wales uh, and went to school some 20 miles away. So I was, when I came home, I was miles away from my mates, you know, no shops, nothing like that. So your music was everything. Absolutely everything. And, you know, I'm sure that, similar to the brother thing, it is a common, common scenario. You know, you find solace almost in the fact that, yeah, you're on your own and you can't go out and do anything, but who cares? I've got all these great records to listen to, you know? (laughs) We had the benefit of growing up really close to New York City. So even when we were 16 and, you know, we found out that Halloween was 
going to be in New York City. And there, there wasn't, it wasn't like it is today where these bands would come through the US, uh, like, especially in the 90s. Um, like, you know, we could maybe go see Dream Theater, but like, you know, Gamma Ray and Ed Guy and, and, and those kind of bands, they weren't coming through the US, Stradivarius, Angra. That was, that kind of started after Prog Power and bands started kind of dipping their toe in the water with prog power. And I remember when we were 16 going to see Halloween in New York city. And it was the only place in the States they had played in 1998. That was one, sh- one off show. If we didn't live, you know, a 40 minute car ride away that we would have missed that. So that was kind of the opposite experience from what you had, where we were yeah. kind of super close to the city and, and able to get to places that, you know, even as rare as it was, um, so that, yeah, that's cool. I mean, that was really exactly what I was kind of looking for as far as that kind of, uh, just the, the inspiration for, for what would, what would be to come. And so, um, well, the fascinating, talk a little bit about your time in drag. Oh, go ahead. Fascinating thing going back to those school days and the band that never was, if you like, <clears throat> I've still got all the books. I've got all the notebooks, the lyrics we wrote, what, 35 years ago. You know, they're god-awful. Of course they are. Wow. But it's a hell of a memento <laughs> of that time. You know, pe- people say to me, oh, sure. you, you keep all this stuff, you know, man, what do you keep it all for? I say, I keep it for that one moment in 30 years where I think, I want to look at that. And I can because I've looked after all this stuff. You know, and it, it, it yeah, it's an old-school approach, but it those things mean a lot to me, you know, in the in the memory stakes. Well, I, I'd like to say we're the same. We don't, we don't like throw anything out. I have, we have like letters from guys in bands that, that mailed us letters when we were teenagers. And like, you know, I, I still have the liner notes of every mixtape that I made when I was in high school. So that like, it's just, I totally understand that there's just a the sentimentality that, that comes with a lot of stuff. And that's why. That's why I have a big basement full of full of boxes because <laughs> I just don't like throwing anything out. Yeah, man, I, I can relate. When you oh. were when you were looking to you know kind of get this band or a band together in the nineties, you know, you talked about that five year period where you were kind of not getting anybody to bite on the end of that fishing hook, if you will. Um, did you have an idea in your mind as to what kind of music you were looking to create at that time? Was it a stadium rock thing? Was it um, what Power Quest would ultimately become? Or was it some sort of, you know, a tr- Iron Maiden light? Or what, what exactly were you trying to do at that time when you were kind of still putting out feelers? Well, I, th- I think at, at that point, it probably wasn't the the PQ type design or framework or anything like that um i'm also into a lot heavier stuff you know as chris knows um and and in those days it was more trying to do something that was taking the classic twin guitar thing if you like but doing it in a, a heavy way but not in a in a thrash way or a death metal kind of way in a kind of melodic way and introducing some keyboards into it as well so the keyboards were much more, well, less prominent, if you like, than they ultimately became in PowerQuest, much more of a background thing. But it was fine. I just couldn't find people who would want to. Keyboards were basically the problem. but They weren't that popular in the 90s, particularly the early to mid-90s. 
Um, and as soon as you start to mention, you talk about the band, you say, oh, yeah, but I'm a keyboard player. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so it was, you know, we, we wrote a lot you. Wrote a of back then as well. And, uh, you know, one of my dearest friends was a guitar player in that setup. We still see each other every week, you know, talk about those days. Um, but, but again, it's another, it was a strange time, but it was a fun time as well, you know, working on the tunes, even though we never got anywhere at all with it kind of thing. I, I think all these steps kind of contribute to where you ultimately end up, rightly or wrongly, you know. Was there was there something about Dragonheart that for you, you said, this isn't exactly what I want to be making. I mean, what was the reason for you saying like, Hey, this is great and everything, but I kind of want to head up my own project. Uh, I, w- Cause if you're not like really familiar with all the, the sub sub genres of metal, and there are very many of them, <laughs> you know, you might listen to dragon force and power quest back to back and say, Oh, this sounds kind of similar. But if you're somebody like us who ingests, this type of music in all all of its forms, to me, you know, you listen to that first Dragon Force album and you listen to that first Power Quest album, and I find that they're actually very different. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what was it for you? Was it that you didn't feel like you had as much creative input as you would have liked as a songwriter? Or what was the reason for wanting to kind of go off on your own um, at that point in time? Probably a couple of things. I think I'll always be grateful for the chance meeting of those guys, you know, and the, and the couple of years we spent jamming together and uh, and playing together because it did focus my mind somewhat, you know. I've got to say that. And I think, what well, you know, while we were jamming around and you know writing, you know, those early songs and so on, it was you know quite apparent that it was always going to be about the guitars. Not that it always has to be about the keyboards in my case, of course, but I, I didn't see really how we were going to get to that point where we might have a keyboard-driven song at that time anyway. I, I couldn't see where it was coming from unless it was going to be a piano ballad, you know, which is fine. But Steve Scott, who was the bass player in the, the original in, incarnation of uh, Dragonheart, me and him kind of clicked because we're quite similar people in a lot of ways, very kind of not typical rock musicians and all that kind of stuff, quite quiet chaps and all that kind of thing. Uh, and he was very much into his um, melodic rock stuff, you know, bands like Giant and things like that. And, and he said to me one day, he said, well, what, what if we did something that was kind of like Giant and Winger and Van Halen, but mixed it with the, the power metal thing? What do you think to that? I said, well, that's exactly what I've been thinking, I said. So I said, well, why, why don't we why don't we have a go at this? So I said, yeah, okay. So that, that must have been the start of 2001, I suppose. Because me and Steve had been hanging out quite a lot. I'd be going up to London to see him. And, and you know, we, we became very, well, still are very, very good friends. Um, the interesting thing then was that uh, old Sam Topman got wind of what we were doing. And uh, him being a big fan of the 80s and all that, wanted to be involved in that as well which, of course, was absolutely fine. Um, and I suppose that was the core to start with. Um, and shortly afterwards, we added um, the guitar player, Adam Bickers. Now, 
even at that point, that's when I knew we were going to have a revolving door kind of thing, or at least we were going to have changes soon. Because Adam was, I think, in the second year of his medical degree at the time. So he'd already said, you know, once I qualified, well, that's it, I'm, I'm going to be a doctor kind of thing. So we knew that was coming straight away kind of thing. Um, but for six months, no, a bit longer than that, about nine months, Adam would meet me when I finished work at four o'clock. He'd meet me at the train station for a train at 4.30 to London. We'd get there for six. We'd meet Steve and Sam at a dingy rehearsal room in the, in the middle of nowhere kind of thing. Um, we'd re- write stuff for three hours, and then me and Adam would quite literally run back to the, the train at Waterloo, you know, last train, midnight. We'd get back in at 2.30, slow train home, you know, and then we'd be up at six for work the following day, you know, and uh, repeat as many times as, as we did. But it was it was really, really fun times, you know, in, in a sense. No idea what was going to happen at that point. But, um, you know, we, we, we eventually got to the point where we thought we might fancy recording a demo and uh, just see what happens kind of thing. So, so off we went to uh, Thin Eye Studios, which is where Dragonheart, Dragonforce were recording. And, uh, yeah. That, that was the next next sort of phase underway, if you like. Did you have an idea of what kind of um, what kind of vocalist you were hoping for? Because at this point, you know, you haven't found Alessio yet, and, and ZP would come in and, and he would do the vocals on the demo. Um, did you really have, like, an idea? Did you, like, you know, did you say, I wanted to sound like a Michael Kisk type, or I wanted to sound, you know, like, did you have a a thing in your mind as to what it would sound like, or were you just hoping that somebody would come along who would be a good fit? No, we, we definitely wanted that kind of, as you say, uh, Michael Kisk kind of thing, if you like. Um, but trying to find that kind of thing in Britain is a bit of a waste of time, as I found out. Now, we, we put out adverts, some in magazines, got a load of MP3s and a load of, old form cassettes and stuff like that. And they were all horrendous. You know, it just wasn't what we, we were looking for at all. Um, so as you say, Z came in and, uh, and helped us out uh, to get, to get the demo done. Um, and then we, we got to the point where we still didn't have a singer and yet we got a record deal. So, or rather we got an offer to do the first album and yeah, it was small label underground symphony and, uh, in Italy, who, you know, plenty of people started off with. Sabaton started there, I think, and a few, few other bands like that. But I said to uh, Maurizio, who, was the, who is the label owner, I said, man, I can't find a singer. You know, it's great having the offer to do a record, but we can't, can't have a guest singer on a debut album, can we? That's, that's, that's going to look awful. He goes, oh, don't you worry about that, he said. I said, okay. He's like, I'm going to send you send you some singers to choose from. But okay. About 10 days later, two weeks later, this parcel arrived in the, in the mail. There's about 20 CDs in this <clears throat> and a little note in there saying, pick one of these, these guys. I'm sure they'll want to do it. So, uh, I said to Steve, I said, look, I've got all these, uh, all these CDs. Um, so I come up to London and we'll, we'll work our way through them together rather than you listen to them. I'll listen. Let's listen together. Then we'll get a proper, proper view. Anyway, so there's this. 20 CDs or however many it was. Where'd you start? You know, where, where'd you start? I said, I said, what should we do? I'll just pick one, he said. Don't don't look at it, just pick it. First one we picked was Alessio. 
We didn't listen to the rest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes you just you, when you strike gold, there's no reason to dig any further, right? You you know what you've got, um, and 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 I I think that's a great story because it, you, sometimes you just know. And there's really just like I said, no need to to, to go any further. Um, how did that process work? Obviously, I guess at that point, um, the label puts you in touch with him and then you just kind of fly him in to, to do the vocals or how, how did that process work? Well, there was, uh, well, it's PowerQuest, there were further complications, weren't there? <laughs> uh, and the main one being he didn't speak English. He, he didn't speak a word of English at the time. So, so again, me and Steve wow. had a conversation. How, how are we going to handle this? How are we going to manage this this one? So, um we're writing to, to <laughs> our pigeon Italian and, and all this kind of thing. And we eventually work out that his parents are coming to London one weekend and he was going to come with them. So brilliant. This is a chance to, to meet. And of course he, he was what, 19, I think at the time, ne- never been out of Italy really, wow. you know, and, and all that kind of stuff, you know, done records and played gigs in his homeland, but never, never gone any further. Loveliest guy, way. Obviously, he's the loveliest guy, but we didn't know that at the time. But turned out, diamond, absolute diamond. Really keen to do it um, with a bit of kind of translation with his with his parents and, and all that kind of thing. We were found out he's sort of nervous and all that kind of stuff about the the big thing of coming over and spending time with. Well, let's face it, people he didn't know, and people who were well, quite a bit. Me and Steve were ten years older than him, so it's, it's a daunting thing when you're that age. You know, so what? Once we got over that, we, um, you know, then arranged to make the the album and to get him over, as you say, the flying him over. Um, and while we were doing that process, he says, "Oh, do you, do you mind if I bring a friend over with me?" I said, "No, that's absolutely fine." Yeah, he, he's better at English than me. He said, "So, um, so that'll probably help." So, okay. Well, this friend turned out to be Andrea Martangeli. You know, uh, uh, an absolute madman at the best of times <laughs> in the nicest possible way. Um, so he turned up and nobody mentioned at this point that Andrea happened to be bloody good at playing the guitar. That hadn't come up at all. But he turned up and he got a guitar with him. I was saying to Steve, what's he doing? What, does he think he's playing or something? Yeah, he, he's got another thing coming, you know, all that kind of stuff. Until I heard him play. <laughs> And I, 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 so again, I said to Steve, I said, dude, look, if we're going to have a singer from Italy, why don't we have this guitar player from the same town? Because this makes a lot of sense on a number of levels. You know, he goes, yeah, yeah, let, let's get him to do a couple of guest spots on this first record, he said. And then we'll see, see how it goes from there. Cool, cool. So that that's what we did. We did, we did the record, um, Al did a great job, of course. I think that the really interesting thing over the years with Aldo, and certainly talking to him today, um, the way his accent has changed and developed, you know, and is obviously understated. He speaks better English than I do now. It's it's incredible. Um, <laughs> running his own business in London and all that kind of stuff is it, fantastic. And the guys always say to me, they say, look, we'd have never have done these things. They say, if... Uh, if you'd have never got me to London when I was 19, there's no way I'd have wanted to have a business in London and all that kind of stuff. So it's kind of cool that you've sort of helped people to develop their 
professional careers as well, you know, which is, which is nice. But yeah, it was. Uh, <laughs> I, I shared a, a little bed and breakfast guest house thing with Al and Andrea for three nights, and that that was a really really funny affair. That was <laughs> just the whole the whole language thing and the whole gesticulating and trying to explain things. You say, how do I explain a musical thing with my hand? I, well, I, I don't know. But we got there. We got there in the end. And what I would say out of that whole you, experience, friendships were forged there that are probably stronger today than they were back then. You know, and it's uh, it's, an, it's an amazing, amazing thing, really. Just from a random CD. How did you um, – it's – it's amazing the the road that we sometimes go down and, and when you least expect it, these relationships are formed that literally last a lifetime. Um, that's, that's fascinating. I, I'm, I'm curious. Um, I, my understanding is that Carl Groom um, from Threshold actually produced and helped mix and, and kind of engineer this whole um, debut release. Yeah. Did you know him at that point or was he just a function of being at the studio and you met him through, through the, the recording process? I'd met him through the Dragonheart guys. Is that that's where they they'd been recording and all that kind of stuff. So Sam had said, "Well, they they understand the ballpark area of the sound very well." He said, "So it's convenient. They know what they're doing. It makes perfect sense." So I did. I didn't know Carl or um, Clive Nolan from from Arena, who's, who's the other guy involved in Thin, Thin Ice. But, um, yeah. but no, over, over the years, I think we recorded with them. It was the first three albums, I think. Um, yeah, ha- happy days, really. Again, me, me and Adam used to um, get the train up from Southampton. You know, we'd do our stuff. Occasionally, we'd go individually, sometimes together, and you, you'd get to the studio, and Adam would have left it, he, partly from being a really sharp guy. He'd always keep a diary of what had gone on. So I could look and see, oh, this is what they did. I didn't have to ask. I could just read. And he was so good. Well, it's a doctor thing, isn't it? You know, sharp mind, organized mind. And it, and it was brilliant. And I'd do the same for him. So when he'd come back, go, okay, I've got to do this solo here and this harmony here. Brilliant job done. So we had, we had a great time uh, working in that way as well, you know, which is yeah, very different to how we all work nowadays, of course. But uh, I think I'll prefer it those, those days, the actual meeting up in person, getting the train, you know, chewing the fat while you're going up there, talking about things. And as I was saying about, you know, meeting up with Steve and talking in person, you still can't beat that for me. You know, if you want to have a conversation, you know, th- this is great doing it, you know, the way we're talking now, guys, of course. But the whole thing as we were talking before about audio only, it's, it's just not the same. You, you can't bounce off people in the same way, you know. Agreed. Did you foresee there being uh, difficulties with having band members that were from, you know, that were from other places or did they kind of make the UK their home away from home during this time? I just always found it fascinating when I first got into the band, I was like, there's a guy from New Zealand, there's guys from Italy, there's guys from the UK. It was such an international band um, at the beginning, did you, cause I know that there was a point in time later on where you kind of wanted to localize the band somewhat. Um, did you foresee it being kind of a troublesome having these guys that, that were, you know, distance, uh, distant 
distant ways away? Or were you able to kind of convince them to stay put in the UK while the band kind of got off the ground? Well, it, it, it was fascinating in a sense because Al and Andrea were traveling backwards and forth from, from Italy, you know, whenever we had recording to do and shows to do, blah, blah, blah. And I'll tell you, hand on heart, guys, you could phone them up now for a show tomorrow and they'd be there. You wouldn't have to do anything else. You wouldn't have to arrange their flights. You wouldn't have to pick them up for the airport. They did it all. And that was the biggest surprise to me because I was so used to people you just couldn't rely on. You know, you'd say, oh, yeah, I'll see you here at that time. And they don't say, oh, I've got, oh, I'm, you know, I'm washing my hair, my cat's ill or something like that, you know. But these guys, <laughs> they travel halfway across Europe to, to play a show for 80 people, you know. And I think what me and Steve appreciated, I think, was the energy that came from having two guys from a different country, a bit younger than us, uber excited about the whole thing. It lifted us as well. You know, it really lit a fire under us, to be honest. And Sam, Sam was, you know, very similar in a sense, even though he was had the Dragon Force thing going on. He was just as into what we were doing, you know, and he was bringing so much to the table in those early days in terms of ideas and, uh, and so on. It, it was a very unique situation. And I think further down the line, talking or referring to the localizing of, of the situation. I think part of the reason for that was I realized that yes, you can work with people spread far and wide and you can bring it together, but it's never going to be like it was in those early days. You're never going to have that level of enthusiasm and fire. You know, when you've got people coming into an established band rather than a band that's starting out, expectations are different. And if expectations are different, attitudes are different, you know, and that can be a rocky road if, you, if you're not careful and people can get demanding. So that was, that was why I thought years down the line that it might make more sense to bring it all closer to home because there was no way we were ever going to kind of mirror that, um, that situation, even though I must say the closest George is, fits into the same category. You know, he's another guy phone him up, he'll be here tomorrow. Yeah, that, that kind of thing. And, uh, and and that's maybe that's part of the the magic of the current situation as well, that it's almost like a little throwback to those early days, you know. <laughs> and particularly when I George totally, so young. totally see that. And when, when – yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, this, you know, Wings of Forever comes out with such um, fire and fury. And by that I mean um, – the, the way that power metal had been in the early 90s and then kind of going into the to the late 90s, I think you guys just dialed up everything. And it was I think that that's why it was held in such high regard by the, you know, the, the metal press and, and, and obviously the early stages of the Internet at this point, you know, that was really getting off the ground as a way to, you know, kind of bring the music to the masses. Were you happy with the finished product? And what were your some of your standout songs that you said to yourself, you know something, this is something I am really proud of, um, especially on a first album? It's always an interesting thing when you, you look back in that very way because <clears throat> there's a danger that you can be 
you can lose sight of where you were at the time and, and you can end up being overly critical or perhaps overly regretful about certain decisions you made or didn't make and, and so on. I'll be brutally honest. I was just happy to make a record. You know, I, I was perfectly aware that it wasn't a perfect record by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I was perfectly aware there were mistakes here and there. I was perfectly aware that we could have done some things better and so on. However, that touches on one of the really, really important things for me in music. And things need to sound genuine, <clears throat> you know, wholehearted and genuine. It's one of the problems with nowadays for me that everything, it's not cool when you can almost tell which studio somebody recorded their drums in. It's not cool if you recognize the snare sound that well and, and all that kind of business. Um, so, you know, in terms of what we were doing, I, I thought it was kind of cool looking back. You know, it was a bunch of guys really enjoying each other's company, enjoying playing the same music together. And I think hopefully that was what came across on the album, that it was um, almost kind of youthful exuberance in a sense, even though some of us weren't that young. <laughs> you know, I think that, you know what I mean? It's one of those overriding vibes of the whole thing. Yeah, it's far from perfect, but it was one of my favourite records to make, without a doubt. And in terms I, I would definitely say that that, comes across and we we went back and we re-listened to all of these albums um you know in the last week or two and and uh, this was an interesting one to, to talk about because you know it's while it's this very first album by the band and there's kind of a rawness to it and i think i'm pretty sure you guys used a, a drum machine um yeah. on this one i'm fairly certain is that true absolutely um, yeah there's the the some of these songs on here are just still so incredible to me especially i mean far away was the first song i think both me and justin had ever heard and i have justin to thank for bringing it to my attention i had not even heard of power quest and he said you have to hear this song far away and then i would go on to your web page the power quest web page and you guys had temple of fire right to download right off the page so I downloaded Temple of Fire and I was like, oh my God, I am, I'm in, I'm in on this band. Um, this, this, this with Chris is all my fault. I want to put that out there. I take full responsibility <laughs> for creating the super fan that he would ultimately become. I'm sorry. That is my fault. I take responsibility. Chris, yeah, go on. Yeah. Thank, well, you, you can never be thanked enough for that. And, uh, but, you know, I still listen to, uh, you know, Glory Tonight and Power Quest Part 1 and Wings of Forever. And, and these songs are just, they're so quintessentially Power Quest that, like, it, it's just, it's such a joy for me to go back and re-listen to them. So, um, I mean, I, you say it's not a perfect album. I, what is a perfect album? Does one does such a thing even exist? I mean, everybody loves everything in kind of a different way. But um, for for a first album, I mean, wow, like you just really knocked, knocked the socks off of a lot of people, myself included. Um, just, I, it's just such a great, I enjoy going back to it and listening to it. And, and, um, it really, you can see that it really laid the groundwork for what would, what would, you know, what would come. And, and, uh, 
did you were you surprised at at the the fanfare that the, this album received at the time or or did you I, like what was it like from you know as a a creator getting the feedback from people at this time well it, it was it was certainly surprising in the sense that you know back in those days a lot more rested on magazine reviews than than does now of course and um, so to be getting you know you, you you do your first record on of saying to steve if we get a few seven out of tens here and there maybe an eight out of ten that'll be really good but we were getting nines across the board you know and yeah i, I, I couldn't understand it and there, there were a couple of polls at the time sort of 2002 thereabouts we were getting voted into top five British bands, you know, like Iron Maiden, Def Leppard, Power Quest, Thrash Olive. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> now that that side of it, I'll, I'll... that side of it turned into a bit of a, a down downer kind of thing, I think, because I think some of the guys looked at that and thought, "Oh yeah, here we go, we're going to be in that kind of category," and like, you can get carried away, I think. <laughs> with that kind of stuff very, very easily. <laughs> but no, I, I was very, very surprised. Was there ever... I, I was just going to quickly ask, was there ever a, like a, a feeling of competition between you guys and the Dragon Force guys at the time? I, I don't think it was so much competition. I think that was partly because we had a man in both camps, didn't we, with, with Sam. So we always right. knew what... We knew what they were doing. They knew what we were doing and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I, I think the one thing that was a shame, I think, was that it took us until 2017 to actually tour together. I think if, if we'd right. have done a tour in 2003, I, I think that would have knocked the socks off things. I think it would have been just the right time you know, for, for something like that. But uh, but no, I, I think we kind of well inspired each other, I suppose, in a sense. You know, not not so much in a competitive way, but I thought, well, you know, it's two bands here. We're kind of flying the flag for something that people aren't really interested in over here. But um, but that certainly changed over the past twenty years. You know, there's there's no doubt about that. Sure. But one thing as well on the on the wings of forever. Do you have any? Um... Go ahead. Oh, sorry, mate. Yeah, um, on the Wings of Forever thing, just going back to the songs, when we played, I think, yeah, we played Sabaton Out Now in 2017 and we played the whole of the Wings of Forever album. And that was the first time we'd actually played two or three of those songs ever. You know, things like Freedom of Thought and Follow Your Heart, stuff like that. And I, I remember saying to the guys afterwards, I was saying, will somebody please explain to me why we haven't played these songs for... 15 years as it was at the time what, what's going on you know <laughs> and it, it was one of those shows where i really enjoyed the things we hadn't done before you know far far more it was it was really cool i mean we would be thrilled to hear you guys just do like a uh like a deep cuts show where you just play all the, the songs that you don't play as often live. I mean, that's, it's kind of that delicate balance of wanting to please the casual fans, but also wanting to please the diehards. So um, I, I, you know, I had mentioned when we spoke uh, last night, just about how 
um, there were songs from Wings of Forever and Neverworld that I wish that I could have heard when you did those full albums live, um, just because chances are some of them might not get played again anytime soon or ever. So um, Freedom of Thought was one of those songs I had mentioned that I would have just, it would have been so cool to have uh, experienced that. So hopefully you keep that in the back pocket for future future <laughs> tours. But um, yeah, so kind of, do you have any other uh, thoughts on Wings of Forever before we move on to Neverworld, I'll put the ball in your court. I think the, the interesting thing with the album sessions, you know, the, I, I can vividly remember when Carl Groom was starting to mix what we'd actually recorded. I was stood there with Sam and Steve saying, look, I've got, I've got some ideas for the next album. Look, we haven't finished this one, but I've got some, got some ideas. Like, oh, go on then. So I got the keyboard out gave us some headphones, and played what was the intro to Edge of Time. And Sam just took the headphones off and looked at me and goes, you got any more of that? I said, oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So it was almost during the wing session that we kind of made the decision that we were, well, it wasn't really a decision almost. It was just a kind of mutual kind of meeting of minds, I think, that, yeah, we're going to incorporate this kind of stuff into it there. So that I do remember that as the bookend of that session that we were already thinking thinking ahead to the next one, you know? Very good. Um, was there – what did what was your goal as far as um, – like what did you want to improve upon – after releasing your first album, now you're getting ready to release your second album. I mean, obviously you added a, a, a human drummer, which is always nice. Um, what, what, what were some of your goals to, as, as a follow-up? I'm sorry, go ahead. It's not always nice to have a human drummer. <laughs> uh, so I'll make sure to pass that along to Rich next time that I talk to him. But uh, <laughs> Keep on his toes. Um, <laughs> Yeah, you got it. Um, did, did you – was it kind of just a, a thought of, like, let's just keep this ball rolling, or was there something that you wanted to – to was there a we have to top that last one, or what was kind of the, the overall mindset going into this, and what was it that you wanted to do that maybe you didn't feel like you accomplished on Wings of Forever? I don't think there was well, – or I don't recall there was any kind of – overriding sense of we must better that or we must do this or whatever it was. Um, there was that definite view, as I was alluding to, that we were going to, sm- well, not smooth the edges, but add, add some different things into the, into the, the mix, uh, as it were, in terms of the sound, uh, and really start kind of playing what we all like. You know, yeah, we love power metal, but it's not all we love. So we were keen to get that kind of into the into the sound because it would then give us further platforms to leap off later down the road as well. But momentum, I, I think, was a key thing. You know, there wasn't much of a turnaround between those two albums, uh, as and there wasn't much between second and third album either. And I think that was us really trying to see how far we could sort of push things. You know, in terms of keeping people's attention, driving things forward, uh, and so on. Obviously it tails off after a while because you can't keep 
going at that level. Not music, musically you can, but financially you can't kind of thing. But coming back to, to the Neverworld thing, yeah, I, I think we, we wanted that kind of more organic production, I think, and a mix, you know. It's, it's a very different sounding album, I think, from that sound, that side of things. We wanted to have more emphasis on Steve Scott's bass guitar, which certainly comes through, particularly on songs like uh, Lost Without You and things like that. You know, it, it, it almost makes those kind of songs. And, and you need that depth for, for, for those kind of tunes so that everybody can breathe and shine and all that kind of stuff. So I think we – I was very happy with the, the direction we were going and the, the bunch of songs we had for, for Neverworld. I think there were a couple of other ones kicking around as well, um, which – Turned up later, later down the line. But no, the whole the whole vibe was a nice blend of the power metal and the hard rock thing, and a little touch of the progressive thing. And I think you could see the kind of development of I don't know. So let's say take a song like "Glory Tonight" off Wings with the you know the dominant keyboard intro and all that kind of thing, and that that kind of thing in quite a striking sort of way. But then you take something like <clears throat> "Sacred Land." for example, similar kind of idea in a sense, you know, driving it along, but in a not quite as punchy kind of way. It's a slightly smoother approach to it. It's probably not the right word, but it just kind of goes with it a bit better, I think, rather than being too staccato on, on things. But but I think you can definitely take a number of those songs. Power Quest Part 1 off, off the first record, you can see the roots of where things like Lost Without You are going to come from, the, the longer form song and things we've done all, all down the years, you know, because, you know, I, I love that kind of thing. But no, it was um, it was an interesting time because we changed record label then as well. Um, we, we were with Now and Then in the UK and Frontiers in, in Europe. Um, that was the start of one of the, we had a lot of, call it bad luck, I suppose, we had a number of issues <clears throat> excuse me, in the first few years, not least the label going bust before we'd released the album. You know, and, and that ended up losing us a lot of money. Master tapes got lost somewhere and, and all that kind of business. Um, and things like that cropped up further down the line as well. So there's there's that kind of thing that I look back on that time and I think, well, if that, there hadn't been that instability, what would have happened to that that second record? But um, but there's no doubt, I think, that that's probably one of the most popular records, I think, that we've we've done. People often, often seem to refer back to, to Neverworld. Um, and I think it probably was the start of the, the modern Power Quest song, maybe more sound rather, maybe more than Wings was. Yeah, there was a certain maturity to that whole sound, I think, on Neverworld, where you saw um, just the the next logical progression, where you go from Wings to Neverworld, you can hear the jump that's made, not just in terms of the production, but the songwriting, um, obviously the mix, which I mentioned, and just, I guess, the, the, the contrast between the different instruments, I think, comes out a little bit clearer yeah. on that record, and it just kind of enforces what's otherwise fantastic songwriting so you can definitely see that next jump i have to i know i know i speak for the fan when i say that obviously it's a favorite album of many if not you know it's 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 up there for for everyone in terms of this is just a fantastic 
album. I'm curious to see if you hold it in the same esteem as as we the fans do in terms of is it one of your proudest works just as a, as a whole, you know, as a whole album. The, the way I, I often look at things is how many of those songs, whatever record you're talking about, how many of those songs came into the live show at that point and how many of them have stood the test of time? Now, in that sense, Neverworld has to be right up there. You know, not, not you know the title track itself, Temple of Fire, Edge of Time, for many years, Sacred Land as well. Forevermore has been a staple for the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, God knows why we never played that in the early years either. I, I, I can't, can't understand that at all. So there's half that record regularly gets an airing. Yeah, most of those songs are in most shows. So I think if you look at it like that, why are they in the show? They're not in the show just because we like them. You know, it, it's popular opinion so in that sense yeah I, I do agree that um, for me it's probably up there with my top in my top two if you like of uh, of PQ records uh, w- without a doubt and there's not a song on there that if somebody came to me and said Steve can we do this one yes that there wouldn't be nothing I'd be worried about or anything like that you know uh, I suppose right. you take a song like um well of souls perhaps uh, which has its frantic moments and in some ways that song's slightly a throwback to the first album you know it, it's still got that high octane almost too fast for its own good <laughs> <laughs> you know what i mean it's, it, it's that oh he's gonna they're gonna trip up they're gonna oh no they're all right they're gonna trip up oh no oh just about save themselves you know that kind of thing <laughs> Yeah, you spoke about the train earlier. It's one of those songs where you feel like it's going to go off the rails, but somehow you make it to that to that you make it to the station, but you're holding on for dear life the whole way. But I say that in the best way possible. Well, thank God there's a slower bit in the middle. That's all I can say with that song. There you go. It's <laughs> everyone can kind of recalibrate themselves before yeah. uh, before the before the finish. Um, obviously, I, I would imagine that you know there were. You know, you said it best. Those first three albums come out kind of one after the other, and there's not a lot of gap in between those first three. Um, can you talk a little bit about, I guess, the the um, right after Neverworld? Was it your intention to get right back into the studio to record Magic Never Dies, or was that just organically what happened because there were still more ideas that you wanted to get out and and, and get you know get into people's heads? Well, I think at that point as um the other guys in the band at the time will tell you, I used to say to them, guys, have you got any songs? You know, have you any ideas? You know, do you want to throw anything in? And to paraphrase them, they'd say something along the lines of, why do we need to do that when you've got so many ideas? <laughs> and it, yeah, at that point, you know, I was never somebody who didn't want a ideas. blessing and a curse. Yeah. <laughs> right. But uh, but no, it, it was one of them, I think. There were two or three ideas I had on the go as we were finishing Neverworld, if you like, that would come come to Magic Never Dies. Um, and yeah, we just thought, oh, my cat's arrived. Hello, Lightning. <laughs> There's one to edit. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, it, it, for me, <laughs> it, I was saying before, the momentum thing, 
me and Steve both thought that, well, if, if we've got material and we've got the wherewithal to get it recorded and all that kind of thing, why don't we? Uh, why don't we just crack on? You know, why, why don't we try and uh, try and do it? And with and with that record, we we also thought we'd um, up the ante in the artwork department as well. You know, go for uh, the, the full digipack, thirty-two pages art, specific artwork for specific songs and all that kind of business. Thought let's let's try this. Hey, there it is. <laughs> Let, let's go to town. <laughs> you know, go to town on it. And uh, and see what happens. So that that was it. The momentum was there. The songs were were there to work on. Um, artwork ideas were flowing like nobody's business as well. Um, so yeah, we just thought, well, why not? You know, strike while the iron's hot. Um, let, let's follow it up in two thousand and five, and 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 see where that takes us. What was the the songwriting process like at this time? And how much what how much were the other members of the band kind of contributing i remember i remember having a chat with you years ago and i, I remember asking you about um the bonus track from neverworld which was um uh, find find my way to the top i believe it oh, yeah. was called yeah. and i just remember you and i remember you just said all oh, the italian guys wrote that one <laughs> <laughs> I always, I always, oh, go ahead. But they wrote it on the plane as they were flying over to, to record the album. So, so it was one of those, okay. uh, we, we might need another song. Let's knock something together. Oh, here we go. <laughs> uh, and we did need another song as it turned out. I, I always, I always really, I always really liked that song. I felt like it, it, was like a almost like a totally different kind of song. It doesn't it doesn't really fit the rest of the album, but it makes for a fun kind of bonus track. It's like you know the other side of Power Quest. Like <laughs> I I always thought it was kind of cool, and I like the fact that it was quirky and different from everything else. I thought it made for a fun a fun bonus track. So I wanted to make sure I mentioned that. But yeah, getting back to my initial question, like what what was was it kind of just like uh, everybody throwing their ideas into a pod and and everything kind of coming together in the studio. Uh, how was it at this time? What, what was kind of your process as far as constructing a song? It was very much the same format really for probably the first three albums. I think I'd have a end to end sketch of like, this is the intro. This is the verse and so on and so forth for most things. So in the, First album, well, first two albums really. Those of us meeting in London, as I was saying, we'd thrash out arrangements, you know, based based on what I brought in. Um, and similarly, when you know the Italian guys joined as well, you know, they they wouldn't necessarily hear an awful lot of stuff before they were actually due to record. And the best example I can give you of that is when we did Magic Never Dies. Francesco was the new drummer for that for that album. He turned up at the studio having heard nothing of what he was going to play on. Not a single note. Two hours later, he was recording the album. And it's one of the most oh. mind-blowing things I've seen. Three or four days, smashed the with all the edits as well, he smashed out something he'd never heard before. And it's a long album as well, isn't it? It's, it's not a short album. So it was quite remarkable. But what it does show you, I think, guys, is Francesco and, 
Andrea and Al exactly the same. Very, very good musical minds. They pick things up so quickly. You never have to show them twice. Never. You know, it, it's a joy to watch, to be honest. So we, we had that thing where I hadn't defined what I wanted, really, in terms of the drums. So I was saying to Francesco, well, we were all saying, look, this is the super fast one, you know, think Stratovarius. This is the, the mid-tempo one, think Ed Guy, you know. And he go, yeah, yes, yes, yes. I'm like, is, he, is he taking this in? Oh, I'm not <laughs> sure. <laughs> but, Jesus, when, when you heard his output, it, it was incredible. And I think he brought an extra dimension to the band when he joined as well with his kind of overtly progressive overtones. He'd be playing things that other guys would never dream of playing. And that, I think, brought something different to to the Magic album. Was he a friend of Alessio and Andrea? Is that how you got um, connected with him? Yeah, it was one of those classic, Steve, Steve, we know a guy, we know a guy. And I, I remember saying to Steve Scott, I said, Christ, if, it, if they know somebody, he's, he's going to be as good as they are, uh, uh, as a minimum. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what have we got to lose kind of thing, you know? It worked out well. Yeah, it's like you put your own credibility on the line. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. like putting your own credibility on the line where you, when you suggest someone, you want them to be as good, if not better, than yep. you are because it's a reflection on you when you suggest them. So you you knew you knew you knew what you were getting before you heard a note. Exactly. Exactly. As I guess um for the first time, you know, Magic Never Dies comes out, it gets the same, I think, rave reviews that Neverworld did. But it does have, it, at least to my ears, again, a little bit more of that progressive sound to it. Just a touch. I yep. hear, believe it or not, a little bit of threshold in places and, and, and things like that. Just just a touch um, while retaining that core sound. But eventually, for the first time, the band would, I don't want to say take a break, but put their foot on, you know, kind of ease their way into the recording process and, and, and really just kind of, I guess, take a step back before Master of Illusion would be released in 2008. Can you talk a little bit about that period of the band where, you know, three albums come out fast and furiously, and now it would be three years, essentially, more or less, before um, that fourth album would, be, would see the light of day? It, it's, it's a good question because one of the things that was missing really around the the first three albums was sufficient live shows to back back up the records we we didn't get out and play enough i think that's and if you're gonna as we were talking about before if you're going to talk about anything you regret that might be one of the things that, that we didn't um, get out there it wasn't for want of trying a lot of the time but it for one reason or another, it never seemed to come together. So what we decided after Magic was, um, and after we'd had another round of record label collapsing on us, would you, would you believe it? We decided we, sh- we should focus more on the on the live side of things, which led to some quite cool things. You know, 2006, we did a little UK tour with Halloween, which was fantastic. You know, it was a great, great experience. Uh, we did a little co-headline tour with um, Pagan's Mind, which, again, was great fun, you know, re- really cool stuff. Did a UK tour that year as well. Uh, and this was all great because it was 
building up the, the band as a live, uh, a recognisable, good live, strong live band, if you like, as well as being a, a decent band in the studio. You know, it's important to, to be able to deliver on both fronts, I think. So 2007, we ended up doing a, a three-week tour with Angra and Firewind around Europe. Um, that was one of those decisions for a band at our level, given how much it cost to to do that tour, and we weren't getting any fees for any of the shows or anything like that. It was one of those, well, guys, look, we can do this tour, and let's face it, we don't know if another tour like that will ever come along. And it's a good job we did what we did, given that side of things. Um, but financially, it's a case of we can either do this or we can do an album. So it would could have been possible for Master of Illusion to have appeared a little bit earlier, I think. But we then wouldn't have had that opportunity to go and play in different... And bear in mind, at this point, we'd only ever played in the UK. So the opportunity to go and play 20-odd shows in, you know, France, Italy, Spain, and to not only do that, but to have the experience of doing it, to understand what what that actually means in terms of your day-to-day life and, and all that kind of business. Um, so we all decided that um, we'd all chip in, split the cost, fund it ourselves kind of thing, because it's a good opportunity. And at the very worst case, we've had a great holiday <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. Right. That, that, that's really what, what was behind the, the the delay, I suppose is the wrong word, but the three-year gap this time to try and redress the balance. I think we've gone kind of way ahead in terms of recording than, than we had in terms of perfecting the or getting close to being a good live band. Never mind perfecting it. So that yeah, that's why we, we took till two thousand and eight. And it's and it's interesting because we've actually heard this from other people where that live component or that element of the quote unquote band is so essential to the success of the band. And there's, I mean, we've, we, we recently spoke with um, Sanders Groban from after forever. And he actually mentioned that the, you know, part of the reason that the band, you know, kind of stopped, you know, writing songs and, and recording albums was just because that, that desire or that, that itch to play live wasn't there anymore. And so the band kind of just went off in, into different directions. And it's, it's kind of a, it, it's an interesting dichotomy where you feel the need to put out, another album and, and obviously the creative side of you wants to make music, but at the same time you need that, you need to steer that live ship if you're going to continue to, to progress and have the ability to record. So it, it's like a double-edged sword in that sense. Well, it is, you, you've got that balance. And <clears throat> again, for bands like us and, you know, similar for bands like After Forever as well, there's often a third thing to balance, isn't there? And that's your kind of, normal life, your day job and all that kind of stuff and making sure all that's sitting on a, an even keel. And, and I think people, e- even nowadays, I don't think people quite appreciate what's involved in that side of it sometimes. You know, you, you have to make a lot of sacrifice. If you haven't got a big big backer behind you, you have to make some sacrifices somewhere, somewhere down the line. Uh, and the whole playing live shows, not playing live shows is, is an interesting kind of, throw forward from that in a sense to how people have been feeling latterly, you know, post pandemic and all that, you know, we've been sitting around thinking, Oh, should we do some shows? I'm not, not ready for that yet. And, and there's a danger that that not ready for that yet will go on 
forever almost if you don't arrest it. And I was slightly worried I was going to go down that road to be <laughs> to be fair. But yeah, you know, coming yeah. back to two thousand seven, two thousand and eight, I think it was the right thing to to see what the band could do. You know, night after night on the road, and uh, yeah, it, it was great times. We went down pretty well. <laughs> I can remember the north of France not liking us very much um, for, for some unknown reason. <laughs> standing at the merch booth afterwards, you know, trying to. You know, I'm like Chris. I'm a friendly kind of guy when I'm with the merch and all that kind of stuff. And I was speaking to people, and they were just blanking me. Nothing. And when they did speak to you, they speak to you in French. I think, and he said, "Yeah, he just called you a so and so kind of thing." I thought, "Oh, nice. This this is good, isn't it?" You know. <laughs> but everywhere else, it was amazing. You know, from from Portugal to Italy, and it was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Did you have the the U.S. in your sights at this point? Was that already a goal for you to make your way over to, to our side of the pond? And um, uh, same same question, but with uh, Japan as well, because I know you guys got to go to Japan shortly before you got to come to the U.S. finally. Um, but were those uh, goals of yours at the time to, to make it to some of these really, um, really far off places outside of Europe? Yeah, and I think the U.S. and Japan were the two places for me. And, and this takes us all the way back to school days again. <clears throat> and me and my one friend in the new school I went to were looking at magazines like Kerrang! And, and so on back in the day. And you'd see a picture of, I don't know, UFO playing at the Budokan in Tokyo or something like that. And we'd look at each other and go, that'd be cool, wouldn't it? Go to Japan and play with your band. You know, we're 11 years old or whatever. How amazing would that be? And it's from there that my fascination, I think, with coming to play both the States and Japan came from. So I, I suppose it's, it's not so much goals, more more dreams in a sense. So look, looking at it strictly from a, a non-business perspective and more from a, a young lad in, in a village in North Wales imagining what it might be like to go to America or go to Japan and things that I could never have dreamed of doing at that age. Not a chance, you know, and, and I, I find it quite amusing in a way that it was a dream that took about 35 years almost to, to come to fruition, but good things come to those who wait, apparently. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, we were talking about Master of Illusion yesterday, and, and the the interesting thing, at least to me, about this album is that it feels like it kind of took a little bit of a change in direction as far as it felt like there was almost a little bit more darkness um, on this album. It was a little less... A uh, little less happy, um, at, at least, like, musically, but also it felt like as far as lyrics go, it was more uh, heading in the direction of like, there's ills in the world that need to be addressed. And, and this is like, this is our way of saying like, Hey, like we need to, we need to like, you know, band together and be a team and not be, you know, against each other. And I think that that has remained a theme with power quest lyrics up until today. But I feel like this was the album where it really started to become really on the forefront um, as far as like lyr lyrically, but also just there's, it's kind of a little bit of um, uh, 
a little bit of a, a kind of a darker mood or moodier, a moodier kind of feel than the first three albums. Was that something that was uh, done on purpose or was that just kind of where your headspace was at the time? It's a very interesting <clears throat> change, actually, with with this record, that there was, as we were talking a minute ago about people's input into songwriting and so on, changed a lot with this record. And that has a lot to do with the change of sound. So this time, as opposed to me having a whole bunch of songs end-to-end, I had a whole bunch of songs, but not so fully formed, if you like. So we, we had a couple of... Yeah, sort of long weekends, if you like. Me and Steve went out to Italy, and uh, Francesco had a kind of rehearsal space, recording space in his in the basement of his house. So we basically stayed in there for about eight days in total, working these songs up. And uh, Andrea was keen to get a more um, almost Metallica kind of guitar sound going on for the rhythm guitar, something more chunky uh, and all that kind of thing. And we also took the decision to do something that we hadn't done before, um, and we haven't touched on this earlier, but a little comment on how all the sequence of recording is very unusual with, or at least it was in the early days with PQ, in the sense that key, there aren't many bands who record keyboards first, <laughs> for example, which led to... No, this actually, now now my ears are perked up because this is the first I've heard. I, I didn't realize that that was happening. I didn't even know that that was possible. Can you go into more depth there? Because uh, I'm, I'm really curious to see how this kind of comes about. Yeah, for, first album, man. We, we went into the studio. I sat there with Carl and he was going, okay, what have you got? Um, so I basically play and he'd record. You know, so we, we just, and then he go, okay, so... This is the middle eight. This is that. This is this. So we label it all up and they go, okay, let's do this. Move these around, do this. There we are. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Then that was the, the guy. Well, it wasn't a guide track really for the guys. It was almost close to what was going to be on the record. Now that did have one downside, which it kind of restricted people a little bit. You know, if, if there's too much framework for you to work around, it becomes harder to work around it. So that, that, that was one reason that I think the keyboards were quite dominant in the, in the early days as well, because they were there before everything else was. E- even, you know, it was just going to a click track rather than the drums actually being there. So a very, very different way of working. But we thought at the time that it was the best way, given, you know, we didn't have studios at home or anything like that, you know, the best way to get the full idea out as quickly as possible so people can understand it and then work with it from that point. But with Master of Illusion, we actually started doing what other people do, and recording some drums first and, <laughs> and things like that, which then gave me a different perspective on the whole thing because now I think, well, I've got all these ideas, but hold on a minute, there's no room for half of them anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, so that got me thinking. It makes sense, and I guess, yeah. When you have a band that's um, very much keyboard driven and a little less guitar centric, not that there's obviously not guitars on the album, not that there aren't fantastic solos, but it's just a different approach or a different take on that standard power metal sound like a Halloween or something like that. It's interesting because when there's less room for them, it changes the overall dynamic of the band, or at least to my ears. And so that's, I think, part of the 
the allure or or the intrigue of Master of Illusion because it was so it was a departure from even those even the first three records. Obviously, it just became a little bit of a departure in terms of um, style, songwriting, and and to your point, I guess the prominence of the keyboards in certain places. It's not as um, it's not as prominent as, as it was on, on, on some of the other, uh, you know, some of the other albums. And, and obviously a song like Cemetery Gates has it a little bit more, but then I think it, as you get deeper into the record, there's, there's a little bit less keyboards as you go through it. Mm. But even, you know, a song like Cemetery Gates, even the, the solo section for want of a better phrase is very different in that song. It's, it's a lot heavier. It hasn't got tons of keyboards all over it. It's, it's all about the riff and stuff, you know? Absolutely. And that, and that was 100%. really and, and I think that driving that idea, you know? It's, it's, it's interesting, um, but it is palpable. It's something that I, as a listener, noticed. And, and, I, and I, you know, I think you answered the question perfectly in terms of how that sound or how that construct wound up coming about um how i'd I'd love to know your thoughts on that particular record in terms of is that something that you know you you were happy to kind of do something a little bit different or try a different approach because i guess other you know other guys were now kind of stepping up a little bit more with the songwriting and kind of pitching in their own ideas whereas maybe they were taking a back seat a couple of years prior um or or was it kind of an experiment for you but you know maybe it didn't have the long-lasting effects that you might have hoped yeah it's an interesting combination of a number of those things um not least the fact that some guys in the band at that stage was starting to listen to bands like linkin park and and that kind of thing so that so there was definite movement within the ranks if you like to from a production point of view to be a bit more modern and and i think that certainly has come out in the guitars there. It's come out in some of the keyboards. There's a few loops and samples and stuff appearing for the first time, which was mainly courtesy of Richard West from Threshold, who was producing keys for us in, in that session. A lot of it as well, I, I put down to, because we recorded the album in Italy in the main. The guys being on home soil, it, it's a home fixture, and, and being 100% more comfortable as a result. So, you know, we were going going into a studio, completely different way of working to over here. We'd have a two and a half hour lunch break in a restaurant. And, and I'm thinking, guys, what are we doing? You know, we're on the clock here, man. Come on. <laughs> but now, you know, unlike over here where people totally. clock off at six o'clock in the evening, these guys keep working till 10, 11 o'clock at night as well. So it's just a completely different approach. And I think because we went with that, let's do the drums, let's do the guitars, and as we were doing that, Richard was also um, going over my lyrics and so on. And I can remember the song Human Machine. Worked quite a lot on that to try and get it exactly right. And he, he kept saying to me, it's no good, Steve. You need, you need to rewrite this verse. Now, go and, sit in that, go and sit in that room and don't come out until you've got something better. <laughs> And it it really worked. It really worked. You know, and so we we had a lot of different things, a lot of things going on during that session that were new. New people involved, different engineer in the studio, obviously being in Italy. Um, We had, I suppose, for one of the few times with PQ, 
the same lineup making two albums back to back, which was it might even be the only time that's happened. Well, it probably is actually thinking about it, but that that was a a bonus I think. Without that, I don't think we'd have had the the courage to try a different approach, uh, and I don't think I would have been convinced to go down that. I wasn't sure to start with, you know. I took a bit of bit of convincing and a bit of explaining and all that kind of thing, but ultimately, where you were talking about the lyrics, I've got got these lyrical ideas, and I thought, well, these aren't really the kind of far away type lyrics, so maybe we do need to do something with the sound here to to give those words the impact they need to have, you know, particularly a song like, uh, say, Human Machine or Civilized or or even Master of Illusion, you know, to be fair. Um, so yeah, very very different album, very different experience putting the album together, and and a very different reaction when it came out as well. <laughs> <coughs> I, I I always have said that that um, it's not my favorite Power Quest album, but it has some of my favorite Power Quest songs, um, mm-hmm. especially. Uh, Cemetery Gates, Human Machine, and Master of Illusion, those three especially, um, I, I just think they still kind of ha- have that Power Quest trademark kind of sound. But um, I, it's, I, I think it's a very good album. It's just, I, I, it's, I mean, it must be so hard to follow up these three really successful, really well-received albums and, and, and at the same time not wanting to kind of churn out the same thing over and over again you know it's like uh i'd quoted a friend of ours last night when we were talking when he was talking about halloween and he said we don't we didn't need 10 keeper of the seven keys um you know it's it's the the mature the the maturation of a band and watching a band grow and 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 it's it's a pleasure as a fan to kind of watch and it's always fun for me to go back and listen to this album just because it, it feels different and that's kind of that's kind of fun and and um things would get real different (laughs) on the next album um (laughs) what was we kind of alluded to it earlier about wanting to have uh more of like a local a local presence but what was the catalyst of kind of just blowing up the whole band and and kind of recruiting a, a new crew and kind of starting over um this was the part I think both me and Justin were most excited to talk to you about because this is a really interesting just kind of wipe the slate clean and start from scratch. So um, have at it. I'm, I, I can't wait to hear about this. <laughs> well, th- this this particular story or period of time is probably one that if you've heard somebody who thinks they know what happens or what happened, they probably don't. Because there was a thing going around um, not long afterwards saying, oh, Steve, he's a right bastard. He sacked all the band. He sacked them all and he started <laughs> again, which is the complete opposite of what happened. So let me, let me explain. So we've done, we've done the record. And now by this point, we're into 2009, aren't we? Now, we were due to play PPUSA in 2009. We'd been booked, we'd done all the paperwork and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then the visas just didn't happen. So we all took a bit of a hit on the, 
that it, it wasn't um, the same setup as it is now with Nathan, uh, for example. Um, it is a d- different kind of situation, different v- visas to apply for, and it, it we weren't guided as much, I suppose. Uh, but irrespective of what happened was I think we'd been told to apply for the wrong visa, so there was no way we were going to get approval for the wrong wrong visa. So there was that show. There was a show in Scandinavia scheduled for that year as well that also fell through, and something else dropped off the radar as well. So we did the UK tour for, for Master of Illusion, and I think the guys got a little bit disappointed with the fact things had got cancelled, things they were looking forward to, things we'd worked, like we were talking about US and Japan, things we dreamed of and all that. And I think by this point, Al and Andrea have been coming backwards and forwards to the UK for seven or eight years, you know, paying for it all out of their own pocket, nobody subbing them or paying for it. Um, so, yeah, one, one day, um, Alessio phoned me and uh, he says, uh, I'm retiring from power metal, he says. That, that was his opening opening phrase. I, w- I want to do something more um, alternative and, and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I knew he was listening to other things and wanted to do other stuff. And, you know, I, I thought, oh, OK, that's a that's a bit of a blow, isn't it, kind of thing. Not to, under you know, put too too much emphasis on it. Um, but there was no way I was going to try and talk him out of it. You know, you, you could hear that's what he wanted to do. You know, he'd been a great part of the band, key part of the band for, for so long. Um, I said, man, no, you you go with my blessing kind of thing. You know, you, you go and do what you got to do. So that, I said, oh, OK, right. Just phoned up Steve. Well, need a new singer, blah, blah, blah. A <laughs> couple of days later, phone rings. Andrea's on the phone. Pretty much with the, the same story, you know, but he hasn't got, with his teaching work, his other bands, this, that, and the other, other things needing more time than they used to need. It, he was pretty much in the same situation that he was going to have to uh, hang up his guitar, so to speak, and and carry on with doing stuff in Italy because he just didn't have the time for it. I thought, oh, okay. Oh, well, Steve, we need a guitar player as well. Um, then Francesco says um, it doesn't make sense to have a drummer in Italy if the rest of the band's going to be in the UK Uh, he's perfectly right sensible as ever you know the logical drummer (laughs) so yeah so you you lost three guys in the space (laughs) you know Steve was already well on the way to move into the Czech Republic and get married and all that kind of thing. So that, that just left me, really. Um, and at that point, I remember we did a did a show. In, I think it must have been a little festival in, in the UK. And there were so many people coming up to me going, no, you can't stop, though, okay? you, you've got to carry on. I said, well, that's all very well, isn't it? But replacing these guys? How am I going to go about that? I'd already met Rich by this point. And Rich was actually at the show to watch the band to see what he was going to be letting himself in for kind of thing. Um, but but other than that, I, I didn't really have too many ideas as to um, how we were going to take things forward uh, until I remembered Paul. I thought, Paul, he's been, he's been crewing for us. He's been stage managing for us. He plays guitar. He could... He could play a bit of bass. So I, I suggested the idea to him. Oh, no, I'm not good enough. He said, I'm not good enough. 
I said, dude, do you think I'd ask you if I didn't think you could do it? It's me. Come on. <laughs> uh, so me and Rich twisted his arm a little bit, but probably the best twisting of his arm he ever had done, you know, in, in a lot of ways. So, so we got got the core of the band, if you like, by fairly quickly. But um, guitar players, yeah, that was a bit hit and miss to start with, as was um, the, the singer situation, to be honest. You know, where we, we didn't get to Chitty straight away. Uh, we, we, we tried a chap called Pete Morton for a, a little while. Uh, we had a guitar player called Ben Randall as well, um, who didn't work out. Um, but one guy who did work out was Andy Midgley. He was a re, re, came into audition, really great, looked cool, played great, nice attitude. Um, yeah, he, he fitted in like a glove, to be honest. Um, and then it, it's just finding that missing guitarist, if you like, which is where we found uh, found Gav, of course. So at this point, you know, we're thinking, right, we've got the band. Do we want to try something different vocally? I was wondering, you know, we, we, we've had a bit of an experimental album. We could probably, we, we, let's, what do you think? So, yeah, we were looking at a few few singers and, uh, you know, there are loads of guys I like. There's a, a chap called um, Carsten Schultz in Germany, for example, bands like Evidence One and stuff like that, quite, quite a raspy kind of singer, but very, very hard rocky. You know, we good friend, we, we were talking about maybe him getting involved at, at some point. But, uh, but then I remembered I'd worked with Chitty a couple of years previously on uh, a couple of songs with David Shankle, the ex-Manowal guy. And uh, me and Chitty had got on really well, you know, during, during those those sessions. Um, so we thought, well, why don't we, uh, why don't we try that, perhaps? Um, very left of centre and, and all that kind of thing. Um, so, so yeah, that that became the became the plan, you know, and uh, that was the the start of the Blood Alliance era, I suppose. Very cool. Um, that's you just hit every uh, every question I think I was going to ask. Um, did you <laughs> did you have any kind of c- concerns about um, changing to a vocalist that was a, such a, a different style? Because to me, I feel like and we went we discussed this at length um, on the the previous uh, podcast that we recorded. Um, Shitty has almost to me, and I'm not a musician, so correct me if I'm wrong, but it's to me it sounds like he's maybe an octave lower than Alessio, and he has has more of a, a kind of a soulful yeah. kind of kind of vibe, like a deeper. Um, and I, I'm guessing that there were people that probably weren't big fans of the change. Um, I know personally, we have a mutual friend who was obsessed with alessio this was like alessio was the the great one of the best singers ever like what a discovery and like how could they replace him and all this stuff and i i found it as a fan to be a little bit jarring at first but I, as i was telling justin last night i feel like it's aged really well and it's kind of this really cool album where it's just a kind of different kind of take on on, on power quest and a vocal way while at the same time kind of going back to the the first three albums kind of vibe musically 
Um, but I, I was like, just when I went back and listened to this album, it was just like, man, every song is just like a complete banger. Uh, it's just even the um, even the bonus track. <laughs> I, I think I had mentioned that the the bonus track was um, "Time to Burn." It was, I think, the first Power Quest bonus track that felt like it would have fit right on the album straight away. Like, like it was such a great song that I felt like it could have easily been included in the album and not felt like an outlier. But uh, you know, my fandom aside. Um, what was kind of the reaction both internally and externally to having such a drastic change in, in the vocal style? Interesting. I think is the word, <clears throat> <laughs> but just pick up on your time to burn comment. Um, time to burn was one of the three demos we recorded for that album. So it was one of the first songs we had and it was a real coin toss. I, I remember it, it took until the 11th hour to, decide is that going to make it or is not i can't remember now what the um what we were choosing between to be honest but it, it was a narrow i remember it being a narrow kind of defeat if you like for time to burn not making it to the, the main running order but i think one other thing that's very interesting in terms of how the songs came together as we talked about with the previous album something different started with with this lineup and it's because of everybody being apart from Chitty being in the UK. So we started doing a rehearsal that would be a full weekend once a month. So we did this for probably about a year, I think. And that's how the songs became so tight. If you like the, the guys were playing them inside out and back to front in the studio. There's some solos on that album that are one take couple of gavo in solos bang and and he i and i kid you not i i was sat there watching him do these things and we were in a residential studio in the middle of nowhere in wales which is great you know no distractions so he'd be there amazing solo and then he'd look at me and go is that all right (laughs) (laughs) you know everybody was so on it you know we also recorded a bit differently and when we recorded drums, the rest of the band was playing live with Rich as well. So he could feed off the energy of watching the rest of the guys play rather than just play to a click track. And that's something I, I feel listening back to the record comes across. It, it feels much more like a, a real organic thing rather than something that's been put together step by step, like most, most records are, of course, these days. Um, so, yeah, drum room with glass-fronted drum room he can see us we're in a semicircle facing him it it was fantastic absolutely fantastic way to record it's one of the fastest albums we've ever recorded in terms of duration of session but that's because of the the homework that was done beforehand now that weekend thing that's carried on with the current lineup you know when we were doing this the sixth dimension so this was the start of a new way of of operating if you like in terms of rehearsals because prior to this rehearsals only really happened before at all but the i suppose we we changed i think from doing rehearsals to having writing sessions i think that's probably the the way you know so everybody got to input on the fly we could try ideas out on the fly does it work no bin does it work yes great 
you know, you just got progress, momentum. And I think whenever, whenever you're in a situation, a collective, if you see things happening, you see momentum, you see progress, it just makes you more enthusiastic. So I think, you know, in, in terms of the songs, I think there, there are some of my favourite songs, I think, on that record. In, in songs like Survive and Blood Alliance itself. You know, I, I think Chitty shone better on the more mid-tempo things, the, the, the slower stuff, if you like. Um, although I, I do love his work on Survive, though. Uh, some of the uh, angry screams in that are, are really cool and really fit the mould. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's really great. The downside, of course, was playing live with the older songs. So we ended up having to rearrange the vocals somewhat, you know, to, to cover off the fact that he had a lower voice. So we needed those higher parts to be sung by other members of the band. And I think that also brought it home to me that you need to be, I, I'm not one for having your backing vocals on a, on a tape or on a computer or something like that. I think if you're going to do that bombastic thing, you better be able to do it properly. You know, otherwise, it's not a popular thing. To say, but it's cheating. It's cheating. You can sing or you can't. You know, don't pretend if you can't. <laughs> so, the, and fast forward I to today, you, you make a great point. Yeah, we have a band now. Oh, please go ahead. I, I think we're about to say the same thing. <laughs> Nowadays, of course, with the current lineup, we've got four strong vocals. One of which other than Ash, is good enough to be a lead singer as well with, with Ash's brother. So it gives you a, an amazing situation. But I think that started in the Blood Alliance era, you know, the, the kind of seeds were sown, if you like, and then it was a case of maybe I was paying more attention post that era to when you're bringing new people into the band. It's not, oh, are you good at your instrument? Can you sing as well? Because that's kind of as, just as important now. You know, <laughs> and that's the, the real fun and joy of Definitely. the whole thing comes from these a cappella things like Far Away. When you, you just stand there with your mates on stage and you, you're just nailing it, and you think, man, this is what we dreamed of doing 20 years ago, and now we're doing it as, as I originally imagined it. You know, sorry, went off topic a bit there. Absolutely. Left. And I think that, no, no, I was going to say, and I think that's part of the magic of, of the. Uh, the current incarnation of the band, and we'll, we'll get there very, very soon, I'm sure. Um, but before we do, obviously, after after this album, you know, comes out in 2011, um, the band goes on a little bit of an extended hiatus for uh, a number of years. And I just wanted you to talk about that period in your life and that period of the band, and really what was happening uh, both at, at you know in public and behind the scenes that was kind of you know, causing, causing things to kind of pump the brakes. And then, yeah, I mean, that, that was, it was built to the, to, to the audiences. The band is, is, is disbanding. And then obviously, thank, thankfully we, we, you get back together about five years later. Talk about that process. I, I'd be very curious to hear. I think I, I was becoming more acutely aware of how much finance I was investing into the whole thing. Um, Probably too much, really, for the for the return it was giving, if you like. Now, at the time, I just changed. Yeah, we, if we're at twenty twelve, I think I just changed jobs and taken on a more high powered job, if you like, that involved being away from home most of the week and only home at weekends for two, well, a couple of years, really. So I'm thinking, oh, I just haven't got the 
the headspace for this, really. You know, I've, I've got mounting debt over here. I'm busy as hell over here. Um, what what are we going to do? So I, I came to the conclusion that the only thing I could do before I sent myself into a, a hole that I wouldn't be able to dig myself out of was to just stop. So then I, I spent the next couple of years working like a, a madman, if you like, doing so much overtime at, at work. But of course, when you're away from home, it doesn't matter. You've got nothing else to do. You're either going to sit in a hotel room, so you might as well work. So I was handing in overtime sheets mm-hmm. at the end of a month with 100 plus hours on. You know, sometimes I was just working 12, 15 hour days, back to back to back to back kind of thing. So I, I needed to do that to balance the checkbook, as it were. But at the same time, I'd had a call from Paul Logan, Eden's Curse, asking me if I fancied um, coming to play with those guys. So I thought, well, that, that might be kind of cool to do a, do a band where I've just got to play. I haven't got to do all the organising and, and all that kind of stuff. So, so I did that for, for two years, studio album, live album, that kind of thing. And in the meantime, I was getting my personal situation back to a, a position where at the end of it's probably the end of 2015, I'd started sounding out people about um, did they want to come back. So I've, I've gone back to the Blood Alliance guys and uh, basically see who, who wants to get on the on the train again kind of thing and uh, uh, and see what people say, you know. And Paul and Rich were straight in as, as they were uh, back in 2009. And a couple of people weren't so keen on coming back, so didn't. Um, so uh, off we went again on their new adventure in 2016. Did you, when when you disbanded PowerQuest, was it always in the back of your head that it was te- it's a temporary thing, or did you really feel like at that point, like this could be the end? Bit of both, in a sense. I, I think it was a bit of cliche, but unfinished business. It felt like to me, it felt like I, I still hadn't quite ticked all those things off that. You know, I wanted to do like the US thing, like the Japan thing, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and yeah, I, I wasn't ready to stop, but I knew I had to stop, otherwise we'd never do anything again. You know, it, it was one of those kind of uh, tough love kind of things, in a sense. Um, so no, I, I didn't really want to stop, but I, I knew I it was the right thing to do at that time, and until such a point that you know I could in all sensible manner, come back and start doing things. Because the trouble is when you've been, it's like anything in life, when you've been used to doing something and you you have standards, you have a level that you don't want to stoop under. I didn't want to come, I was saying to the boys, I don't want to come back and do it 75% of what we used to do or 80%. It's got to be the same or more. It's got to be better than what it was before. Otherwise, what's the point other than, a little bit of an ego trip kind of thing. So that, that was the view really that, um, you know, when we got the, the next era going, that was the kind of mantra to start with. We've got to be, well, we're six, six D when we get to it, we, we, that's got to be an album that challenges at the top of the, the PQ list. You know, it, it can't just be an album that's your fourth favorite out of six or something like that. Which I'm sure it is for some people, but for for me it was it it had to be again that that level up in the same way that Neverworld was from Wings at at the start kind of thing. So again, I'm jumping ahead a bit, guys. Sorry. 
No, that's okay. I I just very quick aside about Eden's Curse. Um, you have a songwriting credit on their Cardinal album for a song called Utopian Dreams, yeah. and I would just be remiss if I didn't mention that this is one of my favorite songs in the world. I, I, oh, really? It's such a great song, and it, it's I just I I remember mentioning it to you when I met you at, at Prague Power, but. I that song just every time I listen to it just blows my socks off. I think it's such a great song, and I don't think I think you had already left the band by the time that they recorded it. But um, yeah. it, I guess you had had at least partially um, helped out in writing it, and that's such a it's such a killer tune. So I just wanted to throw that out there. I was paying very close attention to what Eden's Curse was doing while you were <laughs> uh, taking a break from Power Quest because I was just like I was looking for like any sort of hint that. Steve's gonna get the itch again, and <laughs> I I told Justin at the time, I said a guy like Steve who's such a, a passionate songwriter, he's just not gonna be able to sit back and not write. I think for for forever, and so I had in the back of my mind this this real hope, and and almost I almost kind of knew that at some point you were gonna wanna to just scratch that creative itch again, and um. And it, and I, I was so excited when um, it was it was announced, and uh, thankfully our good friend Ashley Edison uh, told this the whole story about um, <laughs> how Dendera opened for you guys at the Underground uh, before the hiatus, and how you asked him to join the band, and so we I guess we don't have to go too deep in the weeds on that story because Ash uh, really painted a, a, a really great picture of that. Um, Gavin's brother Dan would come in as the other guitarist replacing uh, Andy. Um, did was Andy just um, kind of busy with other things? He didn't want to come back. I, I, I always thought he was such a a good fit. I was I thought it was interesting that he didn't come back. Yeah, me, me and Andy uh, got on well personally and musically. We bit bit like I'm with Glenn now, to be honest. Uh, very similar wavelengths, even though both the guys are considerably younger than me. Again, you know you wouldn't think you'd have the, the same types of connections. But no, Andy was playing, uh, who was he playing with? Band in London, I can't remember the name now. Neon Fly, that's who he was playing with. Um, so he, he wanted to stick with... I'm wearing this shirt right now, oh, okay. which, I, which is a complete coincidence, but I happen to be wearing this shirt. I yeah. swear that was not planned, but I, I digress. Oh. <laughs> Even before um, Andy played with those guys, we we played a few shows with Neon Fly going back, oh, probably be going back 10, 12 years, I suppose, to, to when they, they were starting up. Um, Fred and the guys, you know, always nice guys to, to hang out with and play with. But yeah, Andy was with those guys, so I, th- I think he saw his future there uh, for for the foreseeable future anyway. So again, it was one of those, I'm not going to try and twist your arm. You know, you got you got to do what you got to do kind of thing. Um, so yeah, so we we sort of said goodbye to Andy, and then onwards we went. <laughs> awesome! So you released the Face the Raven EP in uh, two, at, uh, towards the end of 2016. What was the uh, what was the response that you got from ever, the fans, from the media? Um, you have a new singer. Um, this song, this song, "Face the Raven." It was like I felt like it was unlike anything Power Quest had yeah. had done in the past. Um, you also had "Coming Home," um, as a little preview of what's to come on Sixth Dimension, and uh, a really well done um, 
re-recording of Blood Alliance, which in my opinion was the, the best song on that album. Um, yeah, just what was the, the response? Um, and just, I guess in general, the response of just the fans, um, I, I imagine you're just going to tell us they were psyched that you were coming back, but you know, like, once again, I'd rather hear it from the well, horse's mouth than from the horse's ass in this case. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think face the right. We we were talking about this the other the other day. I think it might be me and Ash actually. Um, that song, and I never thought this would happen. That song has bulldozed its way into probably being one of those undroppable songs now in the live show. It it's taken on a life of its own. You know, it, it's almost up there with things like. Temple of Fire, you know, the last few shows we were playing, you know, and you, you listen to hear what people are chanting for. That, that's one of the most popular ones now. But I, I always joke with the boys and say, face the raven, that's what happens when you let a keyboard player write on a guitar. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I really enjoyed that, you know, writing a song in a completely different way. Yeah, I'm no guitar player. I, I can play I can play enough to write a song, to be honest with you. But, you know, I presented it to the lads and they were going, Jesus, you know, this is kind of cool. Get some keyboards on top of this and, yeah, you know, let, let's see what happens. And I think Ash really kind of resonated with that song, I think, you know, as, as kind of the first thing you hear from a new singer. It's not a bad calling card. You know, I, I think he did a terrific job, to be honest. He was sick as a dog. I don't know if he told you, he was sick as a dog when he was recording it. Really, really ill. You know, I, I'm not one to overwork people, but I did push him hard. <laughs> <laughs> I think he needed a couple of days off. That's, what Richard, that's what Richard West would have done. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he'd have been far worse. <laughs> <laughs> Two seconds, guys. Sure. So, yeah, as I, as I was saying, the... Raven, keyboard player, writing on a guitar. It's It just created, a again, a, a different dynamic, something we hadn't had before. Uh, and it's given us, I think, another jump-off point now. I was saying to, saying to George yesterday, in fact, that I quite like next album, for example. I quite like there to be two songs in that kind of vein, not sounding like that, but with the same kind of stylistics behind it, you know, that kind of punchy, kind of harder edge to it. Uh, but with the keys on top and with the big vocals as well, you, you can smooth a lot of edges with some great harmony vocals kind of thing. So I think, yeah, it was from a fan's reaction, I think there was a lot of surprise, but I think it was that good surprise. You think, oh, I quite like this. It just not what you were thinking. Coming home, I think we counterbalanced that with something more familiar, almost like that that sacred land kind of kind of vibe and, uh, and trying to... Um, reference all those old songs in the lyrics as well. I thought that would be something fun to do rather than being uber serious all the time, you know, that that kind of thing. And, yeah, and I, I agree with Blood Alliance, the song. It, it was great to do a new version of that. And it's it's a really fun song, even though it's 10 minutes or whatever, nine minutes. It never, ever seems that long when you play it. it it's one of those it's over far quicker than, than, than you think you've been playing it, you know. <laughs> So yeah, it, it was it was good. I thought it was important this time with the gap in time, new lineup to actually have an EP to drop, just as a little taster, rather than rush an album out to tie in with that, announcing the the return sure. and so on. 
yeah, it was it was kind of a new um, it, it was a novel approach to you know you're, you're back here's a taste and then a year later Sixth Dimension would come out which was the full length album and 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 obviously um, every bit of 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 is as good as the old stuff but with a different edge to it which I think was almost a little bit of a more modern power metal style um, which is is one of the biggest compliments that I can give it because it obviously retains the old sound that old fans know, but it's also the, it's a standalone album that if somebody had never heard the band before and they played sixth dimension, they would just be blown away with that album on its face. But I think older fans can hear the hearkening back to that older era and that older sound from a decade or more ago. So it's that perfect blend. And um, obviously it got rave reviews it got you back to the, you know, or back, it got you, it caused that dream to come true. You made it to the United States with, with this album, which was obviously a highlight for both of us who were, you know, in Atlanta, uh, you know, uh, five or six years ago, whatever it was now. Um, can you talk a little bit about that experience, finally getting to, to the States and just talking about, you know, what it was like to, to play that festival? Well, that whole, that whole year in terms of touring was, it was almost like everything you'd wanted to do compressed into a very short space of time. So we, we went from recording the album to playing Sabaton Open Air in Sweden in the August. And then we had Japan and America literally back to back. So we flew to Japan. There's no day off or anything to see anything. We played three shows back to back. Next day, we're on a plane back to the UK we had to go back there rather than come to the way to the States because we had to drop off the two people who hadn't got visas to play the US kind of thing. So, yeah, one night in a hotel at Heathrow Airport, we're on a plane to Atlanta the following day. And bear in mind, I, I, before, before that week, I'd never been on a flight that was longer than three hours. So I got Japan and wow. back, America and back, all in the space of, what, nine days or something like that? Um, so it, it, it was crazy, really. By the time we're on the way to the States, you're still in a bit of a blur, really. But I can remember landing and, and being picked up in this very fancy little uh, little van thing. You know, I, I thought I'd travelled in luxury vans before, but th- this was was incredible. Um, I'd had a bit of bother at uh, customs. I've forgotten uh, American custom guys don't have a sense of humour. I tried to be funny, and I won't do that again. <laughs> well, I tried to be funny. I was funny. It's just he didn't get it. <laughs> but yeah, that's right. whole... I have no doubt. <laughs> yeah, I got taken into a side room and all that kind of thing. And uh... <laughs> but then what happened was really funny. The three or four massive police guys, and obviously guns and all that kind of stuff. And somebody had obviously phoned ahead to tell them why I was coming to see him. And this was all about 10 T-shirts. They didn't know at the time how many T-shirts, but it was all about some T-shirts I brought back from Japan and whether I was intending to sell them. So they were thinking there was a lot, basically. So one of these guys said to me, exactly how many fucking T-shirts have you got? He said. I said, 10. He goes, 10? Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> So it's all much to do about nothing, you know. 
So that was an entertaining start to the Got trip. Got all of the, uh, the American, American hospitality, right? <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, guys. Yeah, thanks. But, uh, but no, mate, that, <laughs> we, we were blessed to be able to stay for the whole festival, which was nice. And given that we, we were the first thing on on the first day, gave us a lot of time to enjoy ourselves and uh, and so on. And I think for me, you know, it was a nervous show because of having two stand-in guitar players, but you couldn't have asked for better stand-ins than Bill and Chris, to be honest. It's not the easiest stuff to learn uh, and all that either, but I, I thought they did a fantastic job. But but for me, you know, yeah, it was a, the show was an absolute highlight, but equally so was the next few days of just hanging out with people. And I like the vibe of, you know, when you're at a festival that's going for a few days, you might be sat in a restaurant, somebody wanders by, and, and you kind of know them already, even though you only might have met them for 10 minutes the previous day. But people then stop, have a drink with you or whatever, you know, off they go, you go off, bump into somebody else. I love that kind of, it's almost like a, a village kind of feel, you know, everybody knows everybody, you know, and that, and that really adds a, a sprinkle of stardust, I think, to the whole the whole proceedings. So man, it was it was a frenetic week. It was a hectic week. Um, yeah, it was kind of scary in some ways. When we were at Heathrow between Japan and the States, Richard developed a swelling on his eyeball that was looking like he wasn't going to be allowed to fly. And, and the doctors told him he shouldn't wow. fly, but he was very much of the opinion that this might be the only chance he gets to play in the States. And if his eyeball blows up, then it blows up. <laughs> <laughs> Now, now that's what, a what's more metal than that. <laughs> that's a real drummer, that is. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, yeah, it um, yeah, it was well, it was it was a thrill for us. I mean, we were. I, I mean, I I started going back to Prague Power to go to see you guys in 2009, and uh, I just said to Justin, "I'm just going to keep coming to this thing until Power Quest shows up." <laughs> And that's exactly what I did, and I've haven't I haven't missed one since. But um, kind of just to um, just to kind of wrap wrap things up, I want to bring it to the current day lineup. So um, you know, Ga- Gavin and uh, Dan Owen leave the band, and Glenn and Andy uh, is it Kopcek Kopcek Kopcek? Yep, Kopcek. Um, they join the band. Um, they're the guitar players on Six Dimension. I thought it was really cool that they got to record their own guitar parts on those two songs that were already written for the EP. Um, yeah. I had heard the EP so many times that when I heard Six Dimension, I was like, oh, those are those are different parts. They, they re-recorded that. That's really cool. Um, so then Andy would uh, leave the band, and, and um, he got replaced by George, as you mentioned before. And um, Paul... Uh, prior to his untimely passing, he he had left the band before he passed away. Correct? Yes, mate. He he left in it was about April twenty eighteen, I think. Right, and so um, Ash's brother Brad, who um, plays with him in Dendera, came on as the new bass player, and that kind of made up the new current lineup. Um, before we kind of just get into um, the the two new singles and and what's to come, I, I just thought we should take a moment and just uh, talk about Paul and and how much he meant to you. And um, Ash had only the nicest things to say about him. I 
was so blessed to just even get to spend a few minutes with him in Atlanta. He was, as I would call him a teddy bear of a man, um, yeah. just an absolute sweetheart. Um, gave me, gave me a big bear hug before he left. Um, <laughs> I, I was really looking forward to like being friends with this guy and, and he t- was taken from us way too soon, but, um, I know he was a, a really close friend of yours. So, um, anything you want to say about Paul, uh, now would be the time. Yeah, man. Paul was one of those guys, you know, you, you don't meet him many, many times in life. Um, when you do, you, you kind of try and keep hold of him, if you like, whether that's as a friend or a, a bandmate or, or whatever it might be. Yeah, big, uh, big gentle giant, really. Um, tough as old boots if he needed to be, as, as you can imagine. Um, but yeah, heart, heart of gold. He was my sounding board for so many years, even when he wasn't in the band, when he was crewing for us and even before that. Yes, yeah, so we go way back to the, the, the mid-90s kind of thing. Um, yeah, he used to crew with a, another friend of mine, Simon, who you know, I'm still friends with now, you know. Um, but, yeah, it, it, something when Paul went, you know, a little bit of me went as well in the sense that it, it changed forever what the band can ever be, you know, on a personal level. And that's, you know, no slight on anybody who, who follows in his footsteps. It, it's not a, a competition in that sense. You know, it's just that it just so happens that that bass player was my friend for 25 years. And that's tough to compete with for anybody, of course. But yeah, man, you know, I I still am in touch with Paul's girlfriend and his daughter. I still make sure, as I said, I would, mate, you know, I'll I'll look out for them if if they need anything. They know I'm only a phone call away. And and that'll be the case for as as long as I walk the earth, you know. I don't have kids of my own, but I'm uh, I'm damn sure I'm going to make sure that kid grows up properly and gets all the opportunities, you know. And you know, I say to her mum, "Do you need anything?" You just let me know. So yeah, massive loss, man. And 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 I think I've only recently started properly coming to terms with it. I think you know, in inside my own head, anyway. You know. Um, tough gig for brad to follow in a sense you know not just musically but for those reasons but you know i gotta say he's he's, he's done brilliantly brad since he's come in you know bass playing singing is just fantastic always a great guy to be around as well but uh but yeah there, there'll never be another paul finney that's that's for sure you know they, they don't make him like that anymore and i you know i did i had the, the privilege of giving a eulogy at his funeral and uh that's probably the only time I've ever had to speak in public where I'm choking back the tears and trying not to uh, not to make a fool of myself. Not that it matters in, in those situations, of course, but um, but I was I felt really honoured though that they'd invited me to to, to say a few words and, and particularly when looking at the, the little service, it was packed out. You know, people standing outside, and that's that's a real nice thing to to see. You know, to see people turning out to show their respect. So yeah. You know, gone, but most definitely not forgotten. I, I thought that that was beautifully, beautifully said. Um, on a uh, on a on a brighter note, um, in the last two years, we got to hear two new songs, uh, "Bound for Glory" and "Now Is the Time." Um, 
the, the, I mean, if this is any indication of where we're headed, um, I, the next Power Quest album is going to be one of the best ever. Uh, these two songs are fantastic. Um, I had asked Ash; he didn't, he wasn't really sure. I'm guessing you probably don't know yet either. But um, do you plan on making these songs part of the next album, or do you think that maybe this was they're just kind of a, a a moment in time and, and um, or, or, or maybe we just don't know, but um, I guess I'll just use that to just kind of segue into what does the, uh, the what does the future hold? And, um, and, and I give this opportunity to give you the floor to talk about anything that you want to uh, plug or promote as far as social media, upcoming gigs, anything you want to talk about. Um, just uh, yeah. Tell us about uh, the present and the future for Steve Williams and power quest. Well, I think at the minute it's um, all, all eyes are on twenty twenty three. To be fair, you know we're, we're not going to do any any shows this year. Um, so what we are planning on doing is, is some UK dates next April. They're starting to be announced um, this week. Uh, we'll also, be looking to do some some festivals. Um, we'll, we'll be in Spain in August, for example, at Leandes del Rock. Um, and we hope to be adding a few more festivals around that uh, here in the UK and further afield, <clears throat> all being well. Um, in, in terms of music, as you can imagine, the, the, the past couple of years has left me with quite a, a stockpile of, of material. Um, so in answer to your question about the two songs released recently, as it stands now, I'd see them as a, a moment in time kind of thing. You know, not not that I don't think they're good songs. And, you know, they might appear somewhere down the line, but I don't necessarily see them as being part of the format for a new album, let's say. Um, maybe what we'll do, maybe we'll ease ourselves in gently. We might do another EP at the start of next year. Do some shows. We, we need to be kind of pragmatic as well. We need to look at things and not assume that, we're going to come back and everybody's going to come to the gigs again. That might not be the case. So we need to look at it as a test the water kind of deal as well. You know, keep, keep your, uh, your sensible hat on as it were, uh, and have a look to see how that, how that all goes out. But yeah, the, the, the long term idea is to release something, whether it's a couple of new songs and EP before some shows next year, release something more concrete, post that, and then see, see where we are at that point. But, um, but yeah, I'd, some very interesting song ideas and songs sitting around. And I think if you like six dimension type type approach and, and you liked all the other strange things we've done over the years, I, I think you'd probably like what we're, what we're going to do next. <laughs> but yeah, no, nothing too much to announce in the short term, but um, as I was saying to you guys before, we're just starting to stoke the fires again, get that furnace burning um, and get that steam train rolling out of the, at the shed again and back onto the onto the tracks, so uh, so that that's the idea. Look at looking at next year and uh, and yeah, keep keep an eye on all the, uh, the the various platforms in terms of social media and there'll be some website updates coming when. Uh, and, and you know what? What we need more than anything after all this time is a goddamn new photo shoot. I'm sick of looking at photos from 2018. <laughs> that's right at the top of the bloody list. <laughs> yeah i uh i gotta say i would imagine that 
after the last three or so years that um, getting some of these songs out is probably going to be a very cathartic experience for you and, and the other guys. Um, it's been a wild, a wild ride for everybody. And uh, I'm sure that you guys are no different. And I think that um, we're all looking forward to everybody just rebounding strong. And, and um, you know, we just came back from Atlanta. We went to Prague power this year and um, people were, people were ravenous. They were ready. They wanted, they wanted to be, see bands. They wanted, uh, you know, we're, we were one of them. It was, it was, again, I'll use that word again. Cause it was so cathartic to be back out there again. And, and, and I'm sure it was for the guys on stage as well. So, uh, I, I'm sure you're looking forward to getting back to normal and, and so are we. And, uh, honestly, thank you for this. This has really been, fantastic as i knew it would be um because you are a phenomenal storyteller and uh it this i mean i couldn't have asked for a better just career retrospective and um it's a perfect way for us to celebrate our 100th episode and now our 101st and 102nd episode (laughs) uh, all in one week so uh steve thank you so much um pleasure guys there's anything else you'd like to say uh Please go ahead and say it. If not, we will uh, wrap things up, and um, hopefully we will see you sooner than later. Absolutely, guys. Yeah, well, thanks very much. The first interview I've done for probably three, four years. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, Nice to catch up with you again, Chris, and nice to talk to you for the first time, Justin. And we'll, um, yeah, hopefully see you guys in the flesh. Wouldn't that be nice? Absolutely. And uh, and when um, you guys are ready to release new material, um, you're more than welcome to come back on and we can talk more about the present day instead of uh, having to remember everything that happened 25 years ago. It's so funny, though. I can remember 25 years ago almost better than I can remember last week. I think it's a getting old thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, we my, my certainly, pleasure. I certainly I appreciate enjoyed the time. It. Absolute pleasure. We'll do it again. Definitely. Cheers. Definitely. Take care. Thanks again, Steve.